Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Is it PAH or PH due to lung disease and or chronic hypoxia? is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH and is supported by educational grants from Actelium Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be joining you today and join my good friend and colleague Val McLaughlin um, we've worked together on quite a few of these programs, um, and we hope you'll enjoy this one. It's a, obviously an a interesting topic. Um, as we advance through pulmonary hypertension, we're learning more and more about various forms, and so we'll have a couple of interesting cases that will, I think, raise some interesting questions today. So these are our objectives. Um, we're going to talk a little bit, some background about hemodynamics and diagnosis, uh, and then we'll get into a couple cases, go into some treatment issues, uh, and then go from there. So this is sort of by way of review. So of course, when we think about pulmonary hypertension, we the critical point before we treat it is to properly diagnose it. And these uh, classifications or groups of diagnoses is something that were developed many years ago, and both Al and I participated in these, these developing these classification system, and I think it worked. It, it's certainly not perfect, but I think the concept of trying to group pulmonary hypertension into PAH, or what you might think of as more of an intrinsic pulmonary arteriopathy, and you can see the various conditions on the right that fall into that category, versus pulmonary hypertension due to another condition, specifically lung disease, left heart disease, or thromboembolic disease, and then the usual miscellaneous. So these are clinical classifications, and they're useful um, I, to, to clinicians. They, they certainly have their limits, and one of the challenges, and we'll talk about this in a little while, is, for instance, you know, in a patient who has lung disease and pulmonary hypertension, when can you actually call this what we call group 3 pulmonary hypertension, or when is it more, let's say, group 1? Um, and that's, you know, I think a topic that we talk about a lot, and I think it's a, a very important one because obviously it, in, it, it relates to how we treat these patients. And, and again, we'll get back to that, and, and one of the cases that I'll show will, I think, underscore some of those challenges with classifying patients that we have. Now, don't forget that, you know, you need to think about pulmonary hypertension before diagnosing it, and we show data like this, you know, I've been doing it even longer than Val has, and showing data that there's this delay in diagnosis of up to two and even two and a half years. And so this is a problem I think that still exists. And before, you know, we go on with treatment, you need to think about the diagnosis. And we hit that home time and time again. Um, symptoms are nonspecific and can be often classified as more common conditions, asthma, other heart diseases, et cetera. Um, and, and the diagnostic process really is one of, of ruling out various conditions. And so the diagnostic algorithm that you're probably familiar with is pretty well worked out. Um, and it really, again, is to basically check off the boxes. Do they have thromboembolic disease? Do they have significant uh, respiratory or pulmonary disease? Do they have left-sided heart disease? Before you arrive at a diagnosis of PAH or group 1 pulmonary hypertension. I'm not going to go into the 
uh, you know, the details of the entire evaluation, except to say that, you know, patients who have pulmonary hypertension can prevent, present with a variety of symptoms. And so, you know, you look at the list of these relatively nonspecific symptoms, and you can see that, um, you know, many different conditions share these features. Uh, physical examination, we still stress, and um, I still use my stethoscope. <laughs> But you, you hopefully can see signs of pulmonary hypertension and, in more severe cases, of uh, right, right heart failure. Hemodynamic definitions are something worth spending a minute on because these have really changed a bit. And, and, and Val knows, and she runs the, helps run the World Symposium that's every five years or so, that a lot of what was discussed, one of the highlights of the last one, was this... Uh, redefinition, if you will, of pulmonary hypertension to a mean pulmonary artery pressure of greater than 20 as opposed to 25, which is how it used to be. Now, that, you know, was a result of a lot of discussion, a lot of review of evidence, historical data on what is a normal pulmonary artery pressure. But the consensus was that um, a mean pulmonary artery pressure, in fact, in normals, should average about 12 to 14 millimeters of mercury. And so two standard deviations, well, that would be 20. However, you know, it was felt that we, you needed to have a little bit more than just a mean pressure over 20 to say you actually have pulmonary vascular disease, i.e. pre-capillary pulmonary hypertension. And that's where the other criteria of a wedge less than 16 and a PVR of at least three wood units comes into play. Um, and then if you look down the list there at post-capillary pH, also a mean of greater than 20 with a wedge of greater than 15 and, and a PVR that's normal or less than three, you can have combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension, then you can have um, what they call, you know, a, a tripartite definition. And that, I think, uh, another way of saying that is that you really need to have all of these criteria to say that you have PAA. So the concept here is that we're, we're not just talking about a number here, we're talking about a disease or a disorder. And that's, I think, the message in this classification, in this hemodynamic definition of having to have all three of those components uh, present. Hey, Rich, do you think that change in definition has resulted in much of a change to your practice? It, it probably not, surprisingly. And, and I think, you know, there is even some data that if you use that definition, specifically the PVR over three part of it, you know, you're not going to add that many patients. And, you know, there's a, a, to be honest, a fear that we'd be diagnosing all these people that have this very mild elevation and PA pressure of 21 uh, or something like that, and we'd potentially be over-treating patients and whatnot. And I haven't really found that to be the case. How about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I haven't at all. And, in fact, we reviewed our historic um, database on the scleroderma patients, which I think is our greatest opportunity to find early disease. And um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but out of the right heart casts we've done on the scleroderma patients over the past, you know, X number of years, there was maybe one or two additional patients that, that met that criteria that didn't previously mm -hmm. get categorized as PAH. Yeah, yeah, that's that's been my experience as well. And, and so... So I, I think you know this is accepted in the community, and I think it, I think it is important. And again, the concept is that you're really trying to diagnose a disease, not a number. We don't have time to get into the details of, of all the evaluations that are done. I think these are you know all familiar with you. There's nothing super fancy about 
the evaluation of pulmonary hypertension, except that you need to do it. And we still feel that ventilation perfusion scan remains the best uh, test to exclude chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. In other words, a normal or near-normal VQ scan excludes the diagnosis of CTAP. An abnormal one, on the other hand, doesn't make the diagnosis of CTAP. Of course, you need confirmatory testing, um, but we're talking about excluding an echocardiography, which is, you know, almost always done because that's often the first test. But, you know, I think we're, we're starting to appreciate the use of echocardiography in, in ways way beyond, let's say, just estimating the PA pressure, but to really get some detailed evaluations of right heart function, uh, as well as obviously looking for left left heart disease. And, and I think that we're, we're, you know, learning more and advancing more with echocardiography, as I've said, as a non-cardiologist. Um, uh, so, then, so as the non-pulmonologist, Rich, let me ask you a question about the VQ yeah. scan. And many institutions are really having a hard time doing the V part of it in the era of COVID. Can you tell folks how you approach that when you when you perhaps mm -hmm. just have the um, the Q part of it? Yeah, no, that's exact. That's a very reasonable uh, issue and a very topical issue, exactly for the reasons you said. And a lot of hospitals are just not doing doing ventilation scans. We we've been able to uh, do okay with that. I think my general experiences of the chest imaging is normal and really doesn't show significant pulmonary disease, the ventilation scan probably doesn't add that much to the, the study. On the other hand, if they do have, let's say, extensive emphysema or fibrosis, seeing defects, especially smaller defects in the perfusion scan, you don't know if, if that's due to the underlying lung disease or not. And so that can be a bit of an issue. But I think if you couple a CT angiogram along with a perfusion scan, for most patients, it's okay. All right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, we, we, we've been able to do them, you know, just with COVID testing in advance, all that stuff. But, you know, when, when patients have them done locally, there have been some challenges. So you need to kind of customize it exactly as you said. Exactly. Um, okay. And then we get pulmonary function testing, of course, looking for lung disease. So the right heart catheterization, we still feel um, is critical. And we, as I tell patients, we would never make a diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension without confirmation of the right heart catheterization. It helps us confirm a diagnosis, helps determine the cause of a pH by looking at left-sided or wedge pressure, helps us determine severity of uh, pulmonary hypertension by measuring things like right atrial pressure, cardiac index, which are the best hemodynamic indications of indicators of severity. And then we can look for other, you know, intracardiac lesions, uh, left to right shunts, those kind of things. Um, so on the right there is the laundry list. And what I always say, and, you know, I do my own cast, and, you know, what I always teach is that, you know, doing the procedure is the easy part. It's knowing what to do with the information, interpreting the waveforms, knowing what's an accurate wedge pressure, for instance, is is really critical. And I mean, Val, when you, I mean, I do my own. I, I know you, you used to, but you're probably too busy now, and so you have other people <laughs> doing it for you. But I mean, do you, what do you tell people? You know, like who would say, I mean, do you have like one particular person? Do you recommend, you know? One person. I mean, I, I again. I'm not. I don't want to put down our my cardiology friends, but you know, some cardiologists are very busy, and you know, getting good hemodynamics isn't necessarily a high priority. Let's say. 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm a cardiologist, so I can say that, I guess, and be less offensive than you, uh, Rich. I mean, most cardiologists who spend their time in the cath lab are, you know, interested in other things. They're interested in yeah. coronaries or they're interested in structural heart or what have you. So, you know, in, in many institutions, the, the art of a good right heart cath is, has been lost. So I think it's a really valid point. And I, I can't tell you how many outside caths I get that there's no cardiac output or they, you know, the, the, you know, PA pressure tracing changes a little bit, but it's not quite wedged and you get a wedge of 35 reported in a 22 year old woman with no other medical history. Mm -hmm. Right. So these things all happen. So, you know, I, I think that, that trying to control as much as you can is important. So you're right, Rich. I used to do them. I, I, I no longer do my own right heart cast, but we have one other person in our pH group who tends to do most of our right heart casts. We have one interventional cardiologist that works uh, with us in the CTEF area who also does some. And then we have kind of a heart failure doc with an interest in, in hemodynamics who kind of mm -hmm. is our backup in the event that our other pH faculty is not available on vacation, on yeah. service, what have you. So we try to control it. I think one other thing that, that we do is, you know, when we order our first right heart cath, we, we always uh, prep it for an LVEDP as well. And so if yeah. the wedge pressure isn't good, if they can't get a good tracing, then, you know, then that's an option too, to directly measure the left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Uh, but having someone who's interested is, is really important. And I think the other thing is for that person to kind of know the patient, right? You know, like if it's someone who we go into the lab expecting or, or having a high likelihood of diastolic heart failure, we, you know, we think of that as a little bit different than, you know, that 21 year old who's got a family history that we think is, you know, most certainly uh, idiot or heritable disease. And so those things can help you make decisions about fluid challenges and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really great points. Um, Okay, so we do the we do the cath. We may do vasodilator testing for certain patients um, to help us define vasoactivity. There's then a number of other uh, miscellaneous blood tests we get, and most of these are looking for some of these associated conditions in PAH patients. Is, is there evidence for connective tissue disease, uh, HIV, liver, you know, portopulmonary hypertension? Uh, thyroid disorders, which are commonly associated with PAH, um, hemoglobinopathies even. So um, we do get, you know, a variety of blood tests as part of the workup, and we don't want to exclude that. So, again, very brief overview of the diagnosis, um, sort of the basic diagnosis, and now we'll get into a little bit of detail with case one, and I'll turn it over to Val to take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Rich. I, I think if you don't mind, uh, Rich, I'm going to just address one question while the discussion about chemodynamics is fresh in our mind. Sure. Um, and our, our dear friend and colleague, Terry Trow, asked if uh, a PBR of three is too high. And I think it's a really good question, right? Because just how uh, how you said, Rich, that you know, the mean pulmonary artery pressure is 14, two standard deviations is 20. They pulled 25 out of the sky way back when because 
seemed like you needed to have a little bit more than, you know, upper normal to be called this disease. It's kind of the same thing with pulmonary vascular resistance. And, um, you know, honestly, if I had a pulmonary vascular resistance of 2.9, I, I probably would be a little nervous. Um, mm -hmm. I do think this is something that's going to be addressed in the uh, Next World Symposium. I think it may even be addressed currently as they're writing the next iteration of the ERS-ESD guidelines. Uh, and I personally will not be surprised if we see that drop to, to two. What about you, Rich? Yeah, again, it, 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 I mean, any numbers, your cutoffs, you know, are not perfect. And, you know, this is a continuum. And so, yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. I mean, does that mean I would treat everybody who had a PVR 2.9? No. I mean, if I have a 75-year-old patient who's, you know, has multiple comorbidities and is not particularly limited by pulmonary hypertension and they have 2.9, I'm not going to necessarily put them on PAH therapy even if the definition changes. So I think definitions don't, don't you know, get you off the hook from actually thinking about each patient individually and when you're making mm -hmm. these kind of decisions. That's a really great point. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me tell you about this case. Um, this is a 49-year-old woman with scleroderma, and I first met her in May of 2015 because she had an abnormal echocardiogram. You know, in retrospect, she said that she had progressive dyspnea over the past six months. And at the point where I met her, she was able to do some simple activities of daily living, some light household chores uh, without dyspnea. But she needed to kind of pace herself walking longer distances, such as when she was going um, doing her weekly grocery shopping or um, up a flight of stairs. She was short of breath at the top of a flight of stairs. She had some lightheadedness with very extreme exertion, but denied syncope, uh, and really the rest of her cardiac review of systems was negative. This is her physical exam, 5'2", 160 pounds. Her blood pressure was kind of on the high end of normal. She was a little tachycardic when I first met her, but she was saturating just fine. On physical examination, her carotid upstrokes were reduced, her JVP was a little bit elevated at 10, and her lungs were clear. Um, her cardiac exam was really pathognomonic for pulmonary hypertension. She had this palpable right ventricular heave, this loud booming P2 that you heard well even at the apex, and she had a tricuspid regurgitant murmur. Her abdomen was soft, she didn't have lower extremity edema, and she had some of the other peripheral findings of scleroderma, including sclerodactyly and telangiectasias. So the echo that was eventually done that led her to my office demonstrated severe right ventricular enlargement, moderate right ventricular dysfunction, severe right atrial enlargement, normal EF, the septum was flat in the short axis and RV pressure overload pattern. She had moderate tricuspid regurgitation and in her estimated RVSP was 87. We completed the evaluation. We did a hall walk during which she walked 372 meters, which is low and, you know, particularly in light of the predicted for her young age. Um, and and uh, her Borg score was uh, not high and she saturated well throughout. She had normal perfusion. Um, her PFT showed relatively normal volumes and flows, but her diffusing capacity was 48%, which is something that we typically see in scleroderma patients as they start to develop pulmonary hypertension. Her HIV was negative, her LFTs were normal, 
and her BNP was elevated at 247. So we took her to the cath lab and did a right heart catheterization on her. Her right atrial pressure was 11. Her pulmonary artery pressure was 40, uh, 92 over 42 with a mean of 62. Um, and that mean declined to 51 with inhaled nitric oxide. So a bit of a reduction, a reduction in fact of over 10 millimeters of mercury, but not to our goal of less than 40. And I think it's better if it's even lower than that uh, to consider her a responder to nitric oxide and a candidate for calcium channel blockers. Her left heart filling pressures were normal. Her wedge was nine. Her blood pressure was a little bit lower there, as you can see. Uh, we tend to do um, cardiac outputs by both thermodilution and by an assumed thick, and so sometimes there is a bit of a variation there. Uh, her thermodilution cardiac output was 4.6 with an index of 2.7. And her pulmonary vascular resistance calculated to 14.8 wood units. Uh, so we have a woman with scleroderma, six months of dyspnea, functional class three, hall walk in the high 300s, moderate RV dysfunction on echo, and uh, PVR of 14.8, kind of to sum it up. Um, Rich, how worried are you about this patient? I'm worried. I mean, she, you know, we can sort of, and I think we'll get into sort of how we risk stratify patients. For, for to determine the degree of severity, but just looking at everything you've told me, and especially the hemodynamics, I mean, you have a scleroderma patient, so by, you know, they're going to be more worried about them in a lot of ways. Um, she's got a somewhat elevated right atrial pressure. She's got a cardiac index, you know, at least by fit, that puts her sort of in the low intermediate or, you know, intermediate to severe uh, hemodynamics with the uh, index, uh, you know, 2 to 2.5 or so, and a very high vascular resistance. So, you know, those are concerning numbers to me uh, that she, you know, is in tough shape. Yeah, they're concerning to me, too. And um, I, I was really worried. And I, you know, whenever we have our new patients, whenever we talk to them after their first right heart catheterization, we really talk to them about all the therapies. We want to introduce everything, even if we're not going to start with everything. But she was sick enough that I was really worried about her and tried to talk to her in, in great length about parenteral prostacycline therapy. Um, and she was one of those people that, you know, was just overwhelmed by it. She just couldn't couldn't absorb it at that point in time and, and asked if there was possibly anything else. And so uh, we made the decision to start dual oral therapy with ERA and PD-5 inhibitor with close follow-up. And I think this is something that is really, really important. We'll talk about risk stratification, yet whatever decision you make, following the patient and reassessing them is really very important. Um, so we did that. And she actually perked up nicely. Her symptoms improved. When I saw her about four months later, she really claimed to be about 90% back to normal. I characterized her as functional class two. Her hall walk was better. It's now over that magic 440 number at 450. She's not desaturating. Uh, her BNP is better, but not normal at 125. Um, her echo to me was still a little bit worrisome. She, her right ventricle looked a little bit better, but it was still enlarged with moderate right ventricular dysfunction and evidence of right ventricular pressure overload. 
so I, I wasn't happy with her. I didn't think she was at goal. I honestly didn't think she was to the point where she needed a parenteral prostacycline. She had improved enough, uh, but I was still really worried about that right ventricle. And so we had a conversation about all of the prostacycline pathway agents, and she um, started therapy on an IP receptor agonist in addition to her ERA and PDE5 inhibitor. And she did well. Um, we recast patients with, within the first year. Uh, and here you can see her hemodynamics. Her right atrial pressure is down to nine. Her mean pulmonary artery pressure is down to 39. Her cardiac index is now at about three and a half. Um, same by, by both methods, actually. And her PVR declines from 14.8 to 4.8. Um, and that right heart cath was done in January of 16, and I still follow this woman, and um, she is still doing well, minimal symptoms, hall walk, probably high 500s, low 600s now. Um, and interestingly, her RV function is absolutely normal on her echo. Mm. So she continues to do really well on triple oral therapy. So a nice success story, but there's a lot there to, to kind of talk about and um, discuss risk assessment with. So this is the table from the 2015 ERS ESC guidelines on uh, risk assessment. On the far left, you see the parameters that we believe are important determinants of prognosis, mostly based on historical or observational registries. Um, and so the things we know are bad are right heart failure, uh, we all sense rapid progression of symptoms is bad, although there's very little data on that. Syncope is a very poor prognostic indicator, really signifies inadequate cerebral perfusion. You're, you can't mount a cardiac output to do exertion. Functional class, as crude as it is, as crude as it is, is highly prognostic in all of the studies and registries in pulmonary arterial hypertension, and the same with six-minute hall walk. You know, we all say, gosh, that six-minute hall walk, it's so crude, um, not very sensitive, but it's highly prognostic. Um, some institutions use a bit more cardiopulmonary exercise testing and peak VO2 and VEVCO2 are important prognostic indicators on that. Um, over the recent, I don't know, maybe decade or so, we've learned a great amount about natriuretic peptides, very, very highly prognostic. They really reflect the stress that the right ventricle is under in pulmonary arterial hypertension. I think probably the most disappointing thing on this table is imaging. And, and um, the, the truth of the matter is it's really difficult to quantitate RV function that, you know, there's different standards, you know, most of our patients have echoes at various places and there's not a uniform reporting system for right ventricular function on echo. Cardiac MR is great, but, you know, they don't get done very frequently. There's just not that much data in all the registries upon which tables like this are built that have precise RV function data. So it's really not in there. Although to me, a picture is worth a thousand words and going to look at that echo is something that's really important and something I do every single time uh, that my patient has an echo. Um, and then the hemodynamics, 
that are important, really not what the pulmonary artery pressure is, really the hemodynamics that reflect function of the right ventricle. So high right atrial pressure, low cardiac index, low SpO2 are poor prognostic indicators. And so you can see this table comes up with cut points that they uh, consider to be low risk, which is a less than 5% 12-month mortality, intermediate risk, which is a 5 to 10%, and uh, one-year mortality and high risk, which is a greater than 10% one-year mortality. So there have been a lot of risk scores that have been developed over the years. We, we certainly don't have time to review them all, but I want to highlight some. Uh, one is the reveal risk calculator, which was based on a U.S. registry of well over uh, 2,000 patients that included uh, all types of PAH, not just the idiopathic types. And it came out with this calculator um, that was then modified. Reveal 2.0 is this uh, modified version. And this includes both modifiable and non-modifiable variables. So uh, Dr. Chanik mentioned earlier, he's worried about this patient because she has scleroderma. So we know patients with scleroderma don't do as well. We know patients with portal hypertension don't do as well. We know men don't do as well. We know older people don't do as well. So those non-modifiable variables are included in the reveal risk score, uh, which is highly prognostic. The reveal to light calculator is something that was more recently published, and, and this has really honed it down to six variables, which are all modifiable. It's taken the non-modifiable variables out. They're given a weighted score based on their prognosis. Um, or the, their prognostic impact. And honestly, this is something that you can do every time you see a patient in clinic. We do everything on the Reveal 2 light calculator every time we see a patient in clinic. We talk to them, we assess their functional class, we examine them, we get their vital signs, we draw blood, we have a BNP, we have renal function, we get a six-minute hall walk. So you can really do everything here um, at the time of a clinic visit. And again, it's highly prognostic. Um, there are, of course, other methods as well, um, based on the ERS ESD table, based on the French. Um, so the key with risk stratification is it doesn't matter which technique you use, you just have to do it every time that you see a patient. And remember, the goal is getting the patient to the low-risk status, really trying to have them in the green zone or having a low reveal score or having a high proportion of the the French uh, criteria. And as much as there are these different uh, ways to calculate risk, they, they really have many of these things in common. They, they all look at biomarkers, a clinical assessment, some sort of exercise assessment, uh, hemodynamics. Um, the only one that really includes the echo is the reveal score has a, uh, the full reveal has a pericardial effusion in it. So that's a little bit about PAH, but you know sometimes that overlaps with lung disease, especially in the scleroderma patient like I presented. Uh, Rich, don't you think a lot of the scleroderma patients, even if you think they're PAH, have some uh, interstitial lung disease as well? Sometimes it's difficult to tease those out. Yeah, no, that's that's the challenge. I mean, this is that's the classic you know case where you know there's several potential mechanisms for developing pulmonary hypertension, as you say, including, you know, primary arteriopathy, PAH, lung disease, and, you know, in fact, they often have restrictive heart disease from scleroderma involvement. So uh, it gets it gets complicated, and you really, really need to think about sort of the nuances for how you 
classify these patients because that's going to you know affect how they respond to therapy to be honest um and i i can you know get into that a little further there's a lot of interest i mean i'm a pulmonologist so specific interest in lung disease and and its role in pulmonary hypertension uh is i think evolving i think if we were to look at it, and i'll show you a case in a minute but you know if we're talking about basic concepts i, I think you know, at the extremes, it's pretty easy. If a patient has, you know, and this is shown here in this nice algorithm, uh, visual algorithm. So obviously, you're doing the usual workup for pulmonary hypertension, let's say in this algorithm, and then you're trying to separate out, let's say, group one versus three. So the patient has some degree of lung disease, whether it's COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, uh, et cetera. Um, and then you can you look at the severity. So the concept here, of course, is that you know the less severe the lung disease is, the less likely it is to cause pulmonary hypertension. Now that's not always true, I can tell you. And there are certain lung diseases that are more highly associated with more severe pH, things like sarcoidosis or or things like Langerhans cell hysteocytosis. Um, those conditions may cause more pulmonary hypertension or, you know, connective tissue disease associated. But in general, if a patient has relatively mild lung disease, and here you use these cutoffs of FEV1 of greater than 60% uh, or FEC greater than 70% um, and relatively modest degree of parenchymal changes, it's probably more appropriate to put that patient into a group one. As things get worse with the lungs, then obviously you're thinking changes. And so if you have a patient who has poor pulmonary function, and I should tell you that, and Val knows this very well since she also helped design a lot of the inclusion criteria for the big trials, is that if you have FEC less than 70%, in some cases 60%, you know, you would not have qualified for a PAH trial. So if we want to use that as a definition of non-PAH pulmonary hypertension, that may explain some of the rationale. But the concept, of course, is as the parenchymal disease is more extensive, the likelihood that, you know, if PAH is less and the likelihood that it's PH due to lung disease is more. And that's why this pretty simple algorithm says group 3 PH if you have these more severe changes. And then at that point, you want to look at the severity of the pulmonary hypertension. So if you have a patient that has only modest degree of pH with extensive lung disease, then this algorithm would simply say you would never consider that patient for PAH therapy. On the other hand, if they also have severe pH, then each case is different. And certainly, you know, we, we go through this a lot, that we have a patient with pretty severe pH, right ventricular failure, but who also has fairly extensive lung disease. Then we have to try to just dissect out or flesh out whether it's the lung disease, for instance, or the right heart issues that's leading to this patient's symptoms. And that's, you know, can be a challenge at times, but this is, you know, what we're, what we're very interested in. Um, Rich, can I ask a question yeah, on, absolutely. on that? So, yeah. um, you know, so at what point are PFTs enough versus needing a CT? I mean, there are some different lung diseases where you can get mm -hmm. fooled by the PFTs that have you know, relatively normal volumes and flows, but there is something going on. And, like, you know, how, how do you incorporate the CT into that decision-making mm -hmm. that you just reviewed? Yeah, the CT is critical. The CT is really, in, in my thinking, is really important. And you said it exactly right, Val, um, um, that, 
you know, and there's a condition called uh, that pulmonologists are familiar with called CPFE or combined pulmonary fibrosis and emphysema, in which you may have relatively well-preserved volumes and flows because you have both restrictive and obstructive processes. The, but when you look at the CT, you'll see extensive emphysema in the upper lobes, typically, and fibrotic changes in the lower lobes from you know variety of causes. Those patients will often have severe hypoxemia and very low DLCO, and that raises another kind of general teaching point I make is that, you know, in patients with lung disease, usually the degree of pH correlates with the gas exchange. And patients who have more severe pH from lung disease tend to be patients who are more hypoxic, have very low diffusing capacities. And you may, you're exactly right, the CPFE uh, may be one of those reasons. And then there's other things, even the sarcoid patients, the Langerhans cell patients, you know, may have this mixed obstructive restrictive pattern. So, very good question. So then we have, you know, you still need the full workup for patients who have, you know, suspected lung disease looking for other things. So they can also have thrombolytic disease. Very briefly, I want to show you this patient here. Um, this is a 58-year-old gentleman, some comorbidities, was getting shorter breath over nine months, also had a cough, mild chest pain, had a detailed history that we take with our lung disease patients looking for exposures. Um, or other risk factors for pH. He's pretty symptomatic, but, you know, a block on flat ground, lifting packages. And he also has a SAT monitor at home, and he's noted that he's desaturating to 83% with relatively modest exertion. Um, so when we look at him, he's, you know, borderline O2 SATs on room air at rest. Um, he's got pretty clear basilar crackles. Uh, some evidence for pH on cardiac exam, and pretty prominent clubbing in both upper uh, and lower extremities, uh, hands and feet. No peripheral edema is noted. Um, so I think, um, you know, we, we kind of already obviously suspected this guy was going to have interstitial lung disease. We got an echo, uh, and it did show some degree of right ventricular enlargement, but relatively mild, and an RVSP estimated in the 56th range. Um, you can see here his uh, FEV1 was relatively well-preserved. His FVC was quite reduced to 59%. Uh, so he has a, an elevated FEV1-FVC ratio and a very low DLCO of 48%. Just to, you know, complete it, we have um, imaging here. Um, and, Mel, I won't ask you to interpret the chest CT, although it, it probably are smart enough. I, I get uh, that that's abnormal. Believe me, I've had a few of these in my day. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Yeah. Um, you're right. Just like I'm an honorary cardiologist, you're an honorary pulmonologist. <laughs> well, and, uh, I don't know about that. but. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, one can see obviously extensive fibrotic lung disease with what we see is obvious honeycombing, uh, more in the lower lobes and the periphery. This is the classic UIP uh, pattern uh, where you have this peripheral uh, a, a traction bronchiectasis, where you see dilated airways out the periphery, as well as honeycombing seen in the lungs, which is typical of a UIP, usually interstitial pneumonitis. The patient didn't have any other cause, so we felt pretty confident that this was a patient who likely had, um, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, other workup was negative uh, for, you know, again, associated causes of interstitial lung disease. And there's all workup that we do. Very briefly, he was capped, and it showed you this hemodynamics. Um, 
Val, I mean, what do you think of these these numbers for this particular guy? Yeah, and, and so he's got, I, I would say, moderate pulmonary hypertension. His mean pulmonary artery pressure is 38. You know, I guess, like, I think of up to the mid-30s as something that you'd expect for for many kind of group three patients, you know, much higher than that. I, you know, I, I, I don't, mm-hmm. don't like to use the term out of proportion, but like mm-hmm. you worry that there's something else going on. His cardiac output is preserved, which, you know, in my experience, we see frequently in patients with uh, parenchymal lung disease or group three pH and his PVR is mo- modestly elevated. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think this is uh, a pretty straightforward group three pH patient. Yeah, yeah, I think I absolutely right on. Yeah, um, and you know the question, you know, obviously is what we're going to do about this guy. But you know, we say, as you exactly said, extensive lung disease, moderate degree of of pH, no obvious overt RV failure. This is likely a group three patient. In in our opinion, we agree. We still have a question of how much shortness of breath is due to the pH versus the lung disease. And as you're well aware, you know, treatment options are very limited for group 3 pHers. And this is more recently one, one approved therapy for group 3 pH that was recently shown in a large study to be beneficial for some patients with group 3 pH, only not all patients. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, I find it really yeah. important to temper the expectations when we have this conversation, because just like you said, you, you know, the they have dyspnea due to both, right? And pH therapies in, are not likely to have the dyspnea that's related to the underlying, or not likely to help the dyspnea related to the underlying fibrotic lung disease. So, so I, you know, we definitely treat a lot of these patients, but I think it's really important to temper the expectations. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely agree. Um, and I'll just finish this saying, you know, we can look at overall things that help us, may help, right? separate group one versus group pH. Um, and, you know, it, a lot of it comes down to severity of, of disease and the echo, I think, uh, underscores that. So it still remains a challenge separating these patients. Um, but, you know, again, that's what, what pH experts are, are about and understanding some of the nuances. So I'm going to turn it over to Val, who just kind of give us a little bit of an overview, run through quickly of, you know, where we are out with therapies, overall for pH. Yeah, thanks, Rich. So, and that was a really interesting case. And, you know, we are all seeing a lot of these uh, sorts of patients right now. So medical therapies for PAH have really evolved over the past couple of decades. You know, when Rich and I started doing this, I'm not even going to tell you how many years ago, like we were privileged to, to be around when the first therapy got approved. And we had that only one therapy for a long time, and now there are many others, 14 FDA-approved therapies for group 1 PAH in the United States, uh, and they fall into the mechanism of action based on these three different pathways. On the left, you see the endothelin pathway. Patients with PAH make too much endothelin 1, uh, which works on the smooth muscle cells, the endothelin A and B receptors uh, that you can see on the bottom, smooth muscle cells, uh, to, to induce vasoconstriction and uh, chronically this causes cellular proliferation. And we can block these receptors with oral agents called endothelin receptor antagonists. 
In the middle, you see the nitric oxide pathway where the deficiency is the inadequate production of nitric oxide synthase, which is required to convert L-arginine to nitric oxide, which works via the cyclic GMP pathway to result in vasorelaxation and inhibition of cellular proliferation. And we can attack this pathway two ways. We can block PDE5 inhibitors and inhibit the degradation of SGC, or we can directly stimulate SGC, so two oral agents to work on that pathway. And then on the far right, you see the prostacyclin pathway. The very first pathway we were able to target the deficiency here is in prostacyclin synthase, which is required to convert prostacyclin I2 um, to arachidonic, or convert arachidonic acid to prostacyclin I2, which then works via the cyclic AMP pathway. And we have a number of prostacyclin analogs that can be given intravenously, subcutaneously, intermittent inhaled, and orally. Um, and we also have an IP receptor agonist that directly um, binds to that IP receptor to stimulate the cyclic AMP pathway. So really thrilled to have agents to work in all of these different um, mechanisms. But what I always say when I show a slide like this is this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many other uh, pathologic pathways in pulmonary hypertension. And in fact, we're in a very rich trial period now where uh, we have agents, uh, novel agents that look at other pathways that, that are being studied. So really a thorough overview of all of the agents is, is beyond what we can do. This is a listing of them, three commercially available endothelin receptor antagonists, two um, PD-5 inhibitors and one SGC stimulator that work on the nitric oxide pathway, um, the, a number of prostacyclin analogs and one prostacyclin receptor agonist. Uh, the ERAs have been studied in clinical trials that have demonstrated uh, improvements in HALWOC. Um, one, um, Mathitatin was uh, an M&M trial long-term uh, benefit, Ambersatin, uh, HALWOC, and also was an important part of the AMBITION trial. Uh, these are all effective agents uh, that do need some monitoring because of the REMS, uh, particularly associated with the pregnancy risk um, and LFT monitoring for bosentin. Uh, these are the PD-5 inhibitors and SGC, so both sildenafil and tadalafil have indications for PAH. Both have been demonstrated to improve HALWOC, as has Riosigwat. Um, Riosigwat also has REMS monitoring because of it is uh, pregnancy category X. Um, and REMS monitoring is, is important for these agents. It's an important part of the FDA approvals, and uh, there are some steps you need to go through to enroll in the REMS uh, program, and these have limited distribution because of that. Number of prostacyclin pathway agents, epoprostenol, the very first therapy we had, uh, traprostenol, which can be delivered uh, four, four different ways, IV, sub-Q, inhaled, and orally. Uh, Iloprost is another oral, um, I'm sorry, another inhaled prostacyclin analog, which uh, we don't use very much in the U.S. since it's um, given more frequently than inhaled traprostanil, uh, which is already given four times a day. So, um, so it's uh, not as, as much used here. And then the receptor agonist, the IP receptor agonist, selects the PEG. Um, and, you know, our treatment strategy has really evolved over the recent decades from that of a sequential looking back to that of an upfront combination therapy, um, induction therapy, shall you say. Uh, and it's important to follow these patients. These are some 
um, uh, consensus statements from the ACC AHA that kind of give some guidelines on how frequently you should follow patients and what tests you should do, and it varies based on how sick the patient is. Um, I think it's been a really rich year for some publications with respect to risk assessment uh, in PAH. Uh, this is from a French paper that looked at uh, initial therapy strategy. So um, initial triple combination therapy um, had better improvements in risk status. The bar on the right, you can see the change in risk status was much more dramatic in patients who received triple combination therapy than either mono or dual therapy, despite the fact that those patients were sicker to start out with. But risk is really what the algorithm is based on. And so uh, the salient points of the algorithm here are making the correct diagnosis, uh, which is what Rich uh, went through very nicely, making the initial treatment decision based on risk and using an objective risk score to do that. But probably the most important part of this algorithm is that last part is reassessing the patient. No matter what treatment decision you made to start out with, reassessing the patient and seeing if the patient got to the low risk status. And if they did, that's great. You just continue to reassess them. And if they didn't, you need to do something else, whether it's add another therapy or escalate to a more potent uh, prostacyclin, uh, you need to try to get that patient into the low risk status. And while we're all very excited about upfront combination therapy, which is what the majority of patients get, upfront oral combination therapy, which is what the majority of patients get um, after correct diagnosis, you know, it doesn't work for everyone. I mean, Rich, you remember all the enthusiasm everyone had about the AMBITION trial, very, very important trial. Um, but I, I really found this Italian paper interesting because uh, what you see, um, let's just look at the left, it's using the ERS-ESC kind of composite score. And on the bottom, you see low, intermediate, or high at the time of diagnosis. And in the colors, you see where they got at the time of first follow-up. So you can see only less than half of the patients who had intermediate risk status at baseline got to low risk with dual combination therapy with ERA-PD-5 and none of the patients at high risk got to low risk with dual combination therapy with ED5. Now, not to say it's not appropriate to try it in intermediate risk patients at the time of diagnosis, but the key is following them because not everyone is going to have that response that you want them to have. Did you, what did you think about this paper, Rich? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, 100% correct. I mean, the statistics is one thing from a study showing significant benefit of the approach, but, you know, it, it just underscores the, the need for the individual assessment and reassessment and the importance of, of serial risk scores, not just initial risk score. Yeah, and on the right, you see the data uh, using the real risk calculator, and it's essentially the same thing. You know, half of the patients at intermediate risk get to low risk, and none of the patients at high risk get to low risk. You know, lung transplant, you know, back in the day, we thought of medical therapy as a bridge to, to transplant, but we do so well with medical therapy these days that we don't do as many transplant. It's now reserved, at least in the U.S., for patients who fail maximal medical therapy. And Rich, being a pulmonologist, you could speak better to the challenges of, you know, trading one disease um, for another with, with transplant. Mm -hmm. But I, I could probably count the number of my patients who get 
transplanted each year on on one maybe two hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's still a challenge because you know the timing of it, and I think we agree if a patient's doing well on medical therapy for PAH um, and they're in low risk, we wouldn't transplant them. And we have many patients, and you have many many patients who've been on intravenous prostacycline for. In some cases, decades, you were doing great, right? And and yeah. and they never needed a lung transplant. They're used to the therapy, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And we spend so much time talking about all of our fancy new treatments that sometimes we don't emphasize the supportive therapies uh, enough. And and some patients need oxygen. If they're hypoxic, that causes further pulmonary vasoconstriction. So we don't want them to be hypoxic. And you have to think about supplementing oxygen, not just at rest, but with exercise, sleep, uh, and altitude. Um, a lot of our patients need diuretics, right? You want to move that right ventricle to a better place on the Frank Starling curve. So uh, many of them need diuretics. And I think exercise is really important. Once they're on therapy, getting them into a pulmonary rehab program and, and getting them conditioned and exercising regularly is, is important. Um, of course, it's a very con difficult conversation to have uh, that, uh, you know, the risk of pregnancy uh, in a woman who's been diagnosed with PAH, but it's a critical one to have. And, you know, it's a devastating disease for both the patient and their their family. So psychological support and counseling uh, are, are always very important, and patient support groups help with that a lot. Absolutely. And, you know, I, we always say kind of it takes a village, right? Like it takes a whole group of folks to take care of our PAH patients. And I say frequently I, I could not do what I do without my nursing staff. Like they are really the backbone of, of, uh, of our center. And, and there's collaboration. Rich and I are making jokes with each other about the cardiology pulmonary thing. <laughs> uh, but they're both uh, they're very important as, as long sure. uh, as well as many other subspecialists you see here. Thanks, Val. So, yep. Great, yeah. great overview of of uh, treatments and and where we're at. Um, so, I mean, just a way to conclude, and I'll get your your final remarks as well. You know, it all starts with understanding risk factors, signs and symptoms, making a proper diagnosis, understanding some of the nuances of the classification system. For instance, as it relates to lung versus you know P8, group one versus group three. Val talked about goals of therapy and this, this emphasis on risk, uh, getting patients to low risk, which you think is very, very important, both because patients want to feel better and, and it's also prognostic as well. Um, and using these tools that are widely available now at every, at every follow-up visit, having a very consistent, systematic approach. Um, and that um, the concept of combination therapy, aggressive combination therapy, add-on therapies, you know, is, is getting more and more traction and, and really is currently the standard of care. So with that, that concludes our presentation. Uh, any last words, Val? No, Rich, I always enjoy working with you. I think this <laughs> is a a conundrum that we get into a lot. Like I face it all the time, particularly in the scleroderma patients. You know, are they group one? Are they group three? Are they some of both? So it's a really important topic. Great. Well, thanks everybody for joining and have a great rest of your day. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by the American Thoracic Society and AKH and is supported by educational grants from Actelian Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated. 
a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.